Welcome to Financial Crime Matters with Kieran Beer. I'm Kieran Beer, Chief Analyst and Director of Editorial Content for ACAMS, the world's largest membership organization for anti-financial crime professionals. In this episode of Financial Crime Matters, I talk with Michael Sachs, who was, at the time of the interview, Executive Assistant District Attorney and Chief of Investigations Division at the New York County District Attorney's Office under Cyrus Vance, Jr., Michael has just moved to PayPal as head of global investigations, but we talked at the time about the expertise of the Manhattan District Attorney's Office in tracking and prosecuting cyber criminals, not least criminals who utilize cryptocurrency. Michael talks about the SinMed case, which brought down the dark web market for counterfeit Xanax. The case required traditional surveillance, cooperation with federal and other state law enforcement agencies, and the DA's ability to track the conversion of crypto into fiat currency. It's a particular pleasure to chat with him, and I hope you enjoy the podcast and will subscribe to the series either on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud. Here we go. Tell me a little bit about cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency is an anonymous, decentralized electronic payment system. Since I oversee financial crimes, naturally one of the things that we're concerned with is are certain digital currencies being used in order to carry out financial crimes. One of the missions District Attorney Vance feels very strongly about is protecting the integrity of the financial systems in Manhattan. When something like digital currency is available, I feel like it's our obligation to actually look and learn about it as much as we can. You had a boom that went on where you had Bitcoin and a lot of people that had invested in that very early made a significant amount of money. When that became public a couple of years ago, you had many members of the public who were actually very interested and wanted to try and catch the next wave of digital currency. So you saw an explosion of different types of currency, people that were investing in them. And when that naturally happens, you also have people that are going to try and take advantage of that situation. When I ran financial frauds, we'd look at all sorts of different schemes. And one of the things that we started noticing was an uptick in complaints pertaining to digital currency. You would have your typical quote-unquote Craigslist scheme where you would have people that would offer online expensive items. A couple of things that we saw actually were very rare forms of Michael Jordan sneakers. People would go to buy them and the seller would say, well, I need to be paid in digital currency. They'd get digital currency, they'd pay for the sneakers, and then the sneakers would never arrive. Now, one of the things about digital currency is that it operates outside of the regular banking system. If this were to happen and you were to make a purchase with a credit card or a debit card, you could try and go to the credit card company, to your financial institution, and say, look, I never received the item that I attempted to purchase, and you may be able to get your money refunded. With digital currency, a lot of the people that were coming in, we had to start explaining to them that it was unlikely that we would be able to track the funds that they lost we would try and identify the individuals that perpetrated the fraud. It's really secure for the seller, but a buyer really doesn't have that much protection. But you can do some things to discover identity. It depends really on the currency that's being used. There are different types of currencies. Privacy currencies skewer who the parties are in the transaction and the transaction itself. There are other coins such as Bitcoin that is a public ledger, and there are actually technology companies out there that have enabled you to track some of these things. But just because we can track it doesn't mean we can always get it back. And that comes to the identity portion that you just mentioned. And for law enforcement, the name of the game always is attribution. A lot of times you can see that a transaction actually occurred, but who is on the other end of that transaction? 
from a law enforcement perspective, we try and find out who's behind the computer so that we can identify the person who actually committed the crime. Tell me about SINMED. We knew that there was suspicious activity surrounding the use of prepaid debit cards. It looked like it was structuring. It looked like there was a significant amount of money that was being withdrawn using ATM cards, just barely under the reporting amount. That is unusual. With that, we started doing traditional law enforcement techniques. You look to see if you can identify where the withdrawals are happening. Can you get video from the financial institution or the bodega? You're seeing all these ATM transactions that are visas loaded with cash. At what point are they making the conversion from crypto transfer onto the visa cards? So the surveillance is we're trying to find out why these individuals are using the debit cards in the manner that they are. You're following a handful of individuals. That's right. From doing surveillance, you can see that they're also mailing packages. So we start working with the U.S. Postal Service. And from that, it appears what these individuals were doing were sending counterfeit Xanax pills. When I say counterfeit, I mean that they were actual Xanax pills. It's just they were made. They weren't made by the Xanax but folks. They weren't exactly right. But they had all of the properties of an actual Xanax pill. Once we started identifying that, it's like, okay, well, how are these people then selling all this? And that ultimately led us to a dark website called SinMed. SinMed at the time was, I think, the third largest provider on the dark web of counterfeit Xanax pills. We started making a couple of purchases ourselves. What we ultimately came to find out is that the Xanax tablets were being shipped to 43 different states and they laundered more than $2.3 million in proceeds. This all started from traditional bank surveillance of, hey, this is unusual. What we ultimately learned is that they were receiving payment, mostly Bitcoin, and they would take that and they would fund the Visa cards and then they would use the Visa cards to withdraw the cash. Who does the exchange on that? There are a couple different ways that you can convert digital currency into actual currency. One of them is going through an online exchange. It's an online exchange in the United States. A lot of them are actually very diligent, but there are some that are not so diligent. And then, of course, if you're dealing with a foreign exchange, it can be very difficult. There are also Bitcoin ATMs that allow you to accept digital currency or cash out digital currency or put it on two different cards. There's a lot of different mechanisms. There are also some retailers that accept I, digital currency. I think those currency. digital currency machines that you see, it's just kind of amazing. You wonder who's doing customer due diligence on these things, who owns these things. It's obviously an ongoing problem. That's right. Some of the exchanges are terrific, but with the Bitcoin kiosk, is it licensed or is it unlicensed? If it's unlicensed, we have seen some of the unlicensed Bitcoin kiosks are actually advertising to get clients and saying, we don't have any KYC or know your customer staff. You can send money right through us. We don't require any ID or anything along those natures. So it can be very difficult. There is a way to at least start to follow that stuff down, right? Yes, but it also depends on what type of currency is being used. Did they use some of less traceable currencies? Yes. But by far the most popular currency right now is Bitcoins. There are some peer-to-peer coins, there are some privacy coins, so it all depends. We develop some expertise within our office. We have had people go to different trainings where we learned all the subtle differences between the digital currencies, what can be tracked, what can't be tracked. We have worked with some outside technology companies whose business model is trying to track these digital currencies. And I should say when Bitcoin first debuted, there were not a way to really track that. 
but it developed over time and you had companies like Chainalysis and Elliptic that now can track those currencies. But it adds a degree of difficulty when mixers or tumblers are involved. If someone takes the currencies offline, they're matching out of sight of the ledger in some way and then putting them back onto the ledger? A little bit, and I am not a technologist, but what I can tell you is the practical effect is what we see is that they are businesses that charge a fee. Basically, they will take the digital currency in and they will route it through a number of different purchases and things like that and then send out other digital currency. So what goes in is not necessarily what comes back out for that particular thing, which makes it very difficult for us to try. They are not necessarily following the BSA. They are not necessarily following the the BSA. That is right. You moved fairly quickly. Still, it was a year-long or so investigation. Oh, absolutely. That's right. This was not a loan effort on the part of the District Attorney of New York. You had HSI and others involved in this. And, That's and right. state officials, too, right? That, so state officials on our end and also state officials in New Jersey because the individuals that are accused of this were actually located in New Jersey. And so the South Brunswick Police partnered with us really well. It really takes a team effort to actually be able to carry out an investigation of this nature. There was fentanyl involved. When we did the takedowns, we executed search warrants simultaneously at a number of different locations. And in one of the locations, we found heroin and we also found fentanyl. But by far, the business model was Xanax. At the time when all of the partners did the takedown, it was the largest seizure of Xanax in New Jersey state history. Well over 600,000 counterfeit Xanax pills were located. We also recovered the pill press necessary to make it. We recovered the underlying compounds that are necessary to be combined to create it. We were able to identify the location where they were making it and seize all of the devices that were being used in order to carry it out. How much money are we talking about? How much money did you recover Do you have a sense of how much money you couldn't recover? No, and in fact, that is a very good topic to discuss. With these types of crimes, when we're seeing it, it is very difficult to say what we've recovered and what we haven't recovered because it could be stored on digital wallets. It could be stored on wallets that are online or not online. If they're online and we don't freeze it immediately, then it's possible that an individual that we have not arrested can withdraw it. If it is on a device, is that device encrypted? Can we actually get into the device? We had another case where it was just a straight-up armed robbery. The amount of money that was stolen at the time was about $1.8 million in digital currency. It was Ethereum that was on a person's external wallet. basically looked like a thumb drive. Individuals became aware that the victim had the thumb drive on them and held them up at gunpoint and stole it. At the time, we were able to actually recover some of that, and because of the fluctuating value of digital currency, what we seized at the time, by the time we're able to forfeit it, it's not the same amount of money, because at the time, there happened to be a dip in the digital currency world. But the good news is, there are three people who were found guilty as part of this SINMED. Three individuals have, at this point, pleaded guilty, but there are others that are still pending. Still going after some of the key people. If there's anything you could say that's helpful to people in anti-financial crime, 
District Attorney Vance has always been extremely forward-leaning on this topic. And he has recognized that so many crimes now involve some sort of cyber element. You have cyber-enabled crime where you have people that are actually using computers or digital currency to carry out the crime. But then you have all sorts of street-level crime and other crimes that there is always a cyber element because there is a cell phone or a computer that has evidence on it pertaining to those crimes and you need to get access to them. He's been quite vocal about wanting to have access to Apple phones. Yes, he's definitely a leader in the encryption field and saying the impact that it has on state and local law enforcement in being able to prosecute crimes. Recognizing that from a very early point in his term as district attorney, he made a very big push in order to build a cyber lab at our office. And we have a state-of-the-art lab probably one of two or three state prosecutor's offices that have this. The lab cost about $10 million. We were very fortunate to get funding from city council. We were also very fortunate because some of the money that we were able to obtain from some of the sanctions cases. You've not only benefited from that money, you've been very generous in funding DNA testing across the country. It is a huge investment, and it's an ongoing investment. So the initial investment is just actually building the lab itself so that you have an area where you can actually do the forensics that are necessary. Because technology is always changing, we constantly have to make sure that we're changing with it. Do we have the right tools to deal with the new issues that are arising? Do we have the people with the right training? District Attorney Vance has been extremely committed to this and we are extremely fortunate to have it. So what we do with the lab is that if there is a device, either a computer, an iPad, a tablet, a regular cell phone or a smartphone, we can bring that in and we can have our forensic experts go through the device and identify information that will allow the investigation to continue even if we can't actually get into the device itself. That is just such a luxury for us to have. It enables us to be extremely efficient and continue these investigations at the pace that they actually need to go. One of the biggest problems that we have with cybercrime in general is that it's a global phenomenon. There are people outside of the United States that are constantly going after people in Manhattan because Manhattan is a target-rich environment. You have a lot of wealthy individuals here. You have a lot of wealthy companies here. You have a lot of financial institutions here. Being able to operate quickly and efficiently is something that we are very fortunate to do because of the lab and because of some other things. We are also very fortunate that in our cyber lab, we have a contingent of NYPD officers. We have a Secret Service agent that works with us. We have HSI agents that work with us. We have our own investigators in there that, again, we're constantly training on the most recent techniques. And it is something that frankly, not most state or local prosecutors can actually do. Where are we not able to go after cybercrime because we need new tools? The district attorney recently testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Both sides of the aisle seem to be focused on encryption as a difficulty for law enforcement. They had said that they would very much like the law enforcement side and the tech companies to sit down and see if they can resolve some of these issues. And they said, if we can't work it out, then they may, in fact, actually propose legislation that would solve the issue in their mind. We constantly have discussions with the tech companies, and we're constantly trying to speak with them to work with some sort of partnership. 
I'm not confident that we'll be able to come to some sort of resolution on this, and I think ultimately legislation may actually need to happen, but we'll see where that goes. In the meantime, there are other difficulties. You're also trying to obtain other information from social media providers, from email providers, and sending subpoenas or search warrants and getting information in a timely manner. Google is starting to say that they're going to start charging law enforcement to produce on search warrants and things like that. That will pose a huge difficulty on smaller offices that might not have money to actually Mm -hmm. pay for this. At the same time, if it's a judicial order and one of the prosecutor's offices can't pay, I'm not sure that Google can say, well, we're not going to give you what a judge has ordered that we turn over. There's a lot of things that are still percolating out there. I'm at least thankful that you guys at the District Attorney of New York's office are on this, and thanks for coming and talking with me today about this. I really appreciate the time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Michael Sachs. See you next time.